0: Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 14 and read down through the end of the chapter. I understand it's warm if you feel you have to sit, do so. But we stand in honor of God's word, and this is the very word of God. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he, didn't wa- he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go, up, go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in the villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we read these astounding accounts of all that Jesus did and taught, we marvel at the compassion of Jesus Christ toward us this morning. This great compassion, this great love, even this great condescension, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to return thanks to you for all of your kindness to us in Christ Jesus, even by your Holy Spirit. Holy Father, you've shown a fatherly love and compassion and care and comfort for us this morning. Lord, we do thank you for DJ McLeod and Jared Harfield and for this work in this church to bring them into, then, this role of being elders over Calvary Grace Church. We also Thank you for the vote that occurred with the elders and with the congregation of Grace Cochran Church and Josh Carey being put in as the senior pastor-elect of Grace Cochran Church where he preaches even this morning. Lord, these are provisions for your sheep. We need help, Lord, and we thank you that you have not left us to be scattered among the wolves and so we just thank you that you're, you're a merciful God even to us here in Calgary. Lord we see your compassionate care even as we celebrate this new baby for the McKinnons. What care and love you have for them and for us as we see your grace toward them. We see as well Lord the engaged couples and dating couples and couples getting married very soon. We see pregnant mothers and All of these blessings that you give to us, even practically in our lives, these are so encouraging to us. We see that you love us. You have not left us without witness even of your word in this crooked and perverse generation. We know that there are perversions throughout this society, and yet your truth shines forth. We pray that it would continue to do so. Lord, very practically we want to intercede even for this province and ask for rain. We pray that you would grant rain on these areas affected by forest fires. Even fires even in, this own, in our own city. Lord pray we ask for this practical even physical mercy upon us. But even more so Lord. I pray that you would grant even that spiritual rain. Even the blessings of your spirit upon souls. And that souls would be irrigated even by your word and spirit. And that people who are resistant to you would have their hearts broken, their fallow ground broken up. And that you would grant to them new life sown even in the depths of their being. And that you would do it in this room, in this city, in this country, and you would do it now by your own miraculous power so that we would give you all and only the glory only to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Well, as Gavin went through the opening there and had us at Isaiah 40 and noting how God gives power to the faint. You might be here this morning feeling nearly faint, and not just because it's smoky and hot in this room. Maybe you're faint with the circumstances in your life. You're faint with the challenges you're facing. Maybe there are things in your life that you are starting to see are nearly impossible situations circumstances that it seems impossible to change trajectories patterns various consequences about which it seems that it it is impossible to see anything changed impossible for there to be any kind of breakthrough impossible For it to be even redeemed. And when we see then the rest of what we've just read in Mark chapter 6, what we must come to grips with is that Jesus Himself is able to overcome that which is impossible. He is able to overcome. Anything and everything that may stand in the way of his divine sovereign purposes. He is able even to transform impossible things into things that are according to his own pleasure. And that is a remarkable thing if you are faced with seemingly impossible barriers and impossible challenges. And in this passage, I believe that there are three, three areas, if you will, three, three themes of impossibility to which Jesus stands against. And the first is a situation I think that we can all really empathize with is the problem of impossible politics. If I think about politics in this country... Yeah, it seems pretty impossible, some of the stuff that we see. It's impossible, seemingly, to change it. The second will be impossible logistics. How do you make certain things change and move when they are immovable, when they are static, when nothing seems to change? And then not just merely impossible logistics, moving pieces around. But then confronting us, confronting us at our most, our most deceived in, in the ways that we think that there is only this material this material stuff of life, and we can think that there is no supernatural, there is nothing beyond what is material. Jesus confronts even impossible physics. So if you've been lulled into thinking that there are a lot more impossibilities in your life than there really are mark chapter 6 is here to blow cold air into your life as you are sweating there it has come to bring relief even to your soul even because jesus stands against what is impossible and And just to say, this is exactly how I feel. I feel that there are many things that surround me right now that seem almost impossible. And yet, this is a word for me as it is for you. Does Jesus confront what is impossible or not? And that is what we're going to find out. The first thing we see, as you see there in Mark chapter 6, is what I've called these impossible Politics and it starts off with this very strange, surprising declaration, and it is the declaration of the resurrection of John the Baptist. It it's strange. Verse fourteen has Herod, King Herod, Herod Antipas in this case, saying, th- claiming about Jesus. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So that the miracles in the first part of Mark 6, those miracles, the miraculous powers, are at work in this guy. That it's John the Baptist resurrected. So we're into religious stuff, but it's political stuff. Because politicians rarely get it right. If you think politicians get it right, I, don't know, I can't help you. I mean, they just don't. It's interesting, in our fallen world, and all the forces at work in our fallen world, it seems that, really, that politics is one of the, the key realms, and one of the few realms in which Satan and his demons can actually leverage the flesh of mankind. But thankfully, in God's common grace to all people, even to sinners and non-Christians, there still remains then this order of, this order and civility which governments can maintain. They can kind of keep things in a certain order, and that's a, that's a mercy to us. Now, in the case of John the Baptist, he did what we spoke about last sermon. He bore witness to the truth. He bore testimony to the truth. And he said, in this case, he said that a man who is married cannot marry another woman. It seemed pretty basic. That's, we call that bigamy. You're married, a guy's married to one wife, and he goes and marries another wife. Can't do that. So Herod Antipas, who was married to a Nabataean princess, he could not marry his brother Philip's wife as well. He couldn't take two wives. He couldn't do it. And John the Baptist confronted him about it. Now, why would this guy do this? Well, like everything, it's all about politics. It's got political implications. And one of the things that the descendants of Herod the Great, that's a different Herod, Herod the Great was the one at the time of Jesus' birth. But in all of Herod the Great's descendants, they frequently intermarried with their own kin. And they did this. They especially intermarried between stepsisters and stepbrothers. And they did this because they they wanted to secure power and keep power within themselves, within their Herodian dynasty. But it's all very debauched and dark. And the Herodians, they rivaled the political factions in Rome. Even for their willingness to murder their own family members, to lie, to steal. Very dark. And so John the Baptist stood against that. He confronted Herod, confronted Herodias, who's also related, by the way. That's why she's got the name Herodias. It's too. Com- I would try to think, can I summarize the, the Herodian family tree in a sermon? I, just, I said I can't. You just have to look it up online because it, there's charts there. It's too complicated. Who's, who's marrying who? And they're all in the same family. It's crazy. It sounds like a Corb Lund song. That's for my boys. They know the one I'm talking about. Anyways, intermarriage and amongst relatives. But anyways. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's just a throwaway. But basically, John the Baptist, he fought the law and the law won. He fought the law and the law won. So for all of his popularity, all of John the Baptist's influence, he couldn't prevent himself from being arrested and being executed in this most gruesome, brutal, terrifying way. To have his head chopped off and to be put on a platter like something you'd eat. Now Mark includes an insider's perspective into what happened in Herod's court that led to the assassination of John the Baptist. The details, they're so tawdry, they're lewd, they're banal. Essentially, John the Baptist was murdered on the whim of a wicked woman and by agreement of a cowardly and cruel husband. You have to, have to see this. Herod Antipas would be the Herod at the trial of Jesus who was eager even then to see a miracle. He wanted to see a miracle from Jesus, but what did Herod do at that time? He dismissed Jesus and sent him back to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate to be crucified. This is a guy, he's interested in religious stuff. But he's not so interested to forsake his sin and follow Christ. And that's the case with so many politicians. That's why you've got to be careful. Don't be deceived. They will talk religious talk. But whether or not they actually will follow Jesus Christ is another matter. But this was the political situation. It didn't matter that Herod believed in the resurrection of John the Baptist. It didn't matter that Herod had a view of Jesus that interpreted his miracles as being religiously based, the politics in Judea at that time still seemed impossible. Here's John the Baptist. He's our guy. You think if you're a Jew there, he's our guy. And he's speaking truth to power. And we're, we're, we're confronting this wicked establishment and he gets, he gets his head chopped off, and it's over. And then we, then you give your allegiance to this other guy, the Jewish rabbi, Jesus, the son of the carpenter. He seems to be a miracle worker. And then what happens? Oh, they crucify him. But the impossibility is the point here, I'm arguing. The impossibility in Mark 6 is the point. And that's why Mark includes this horrible story in his gospel. Because even though the politics in Judea was impossible, they were impossibly corrupt, they were authoritarian, they were cruel, they were unjust, even though that was the case, the conclusion of that little story, verse 29, is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, kept on being disciples. And what did they do? When hard times come, what do disciples do? Well, they do the, the next right thing. They do the next right thing in walking close to Jesus. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. My wife's grandfather, Lyle Richards, one of the godliest pastors I've ever known, he died on Friday, went to be with the Lord forever, And as any of you know, if you've lost loved ones, what happens? You go from the tragedy of the hospital room to doing the next right thing. The next right thing, it just doesn't even seem right, but you've got to plan a funeral. You've got to make phone calls. You've got to write stuff down. You've got to make a plan. The follow-up to death is a lot of difficult planning. But it's just, it's just like the disciples, they had to go through all of that, and they had to go and figure out, well, who's going to go get this body? What are we going to wrap it in? How are we going to carry it? Where are we going to take it to? Who's going to dig the hole? A lot of stuff that it just doesn't seem to be appropriate for the gravity of dealing with death. But that's what we do as Christians. We do the difficult thing and we keep following Jesus. You just go ahead and do the difficult thing. Now, of course, what they could have done and they didn't do, they could have bugged out. They could have said, Whoa, this is getting too hot for me. Our guy, John the Baptist, just got his head chopped off. I'm out. And there are a lot of people in churches this morning who are thinking about that. They are thinking that they do not want to be caught up in the threat of the current, not just government regime, but cultural regime. They're worried that they might get their head chopped off if they stay faithful in the ways that they know, faithful as a Christian. And so what they're going to do, they're going to still say they're a Christian, but they're going to start watering that down. They're going to start to say whatever the state or whatever the culture asks them to say. And they're going to start doing that. Not these disciples. No, no. It costs them to identify with John the Baptist and go hauling his body away. Impossible politics. Was them hauling the body away? Was that going to magically fix the politics of Judea? No. No. But they're following Jesus and honoring a saint. That's what they did. And that's what Christians do. So there's impo- impossible politics, which we know all about. But there's also impossible logistics. And that, that's, that's the, the very real, practical problems that we all face. You know, it's the problem of, of people. People. If you've got people, you've got problems. When you have people in a family, in a business, in a church, you have the collective problems of people. People need to be fed, they need to be watered, they need to have toilets, they need to be warm in winter, cool in summer, and not the other way around, as you're thinking right now. Just nicely warm in summer. No, a little smoky too. But when you have groups of people, there can become these impossible logistical situations. Not enough food. Not enough bathrooms. Too hot. Too cold. Too wet. Too dangerous. But Mark includes the challenge that impossible logistics present. And he includes it here. He starts by highlighting what Jesus had said, you remember, you, to That mission of the twelve, the twelve apostles, the duo-duo, the two-by-two mission. What does he say to them when they return? Well, he he addressed the logistical need that they had. These guys, these twelve, were coming back from their mission, and they were tired, and they were hungry. Just like most of you are right now. You're tired. And you're hungry. You're wondering when you're going to eat. Right? I can hear the stomachs growling from here. Some stomachs. He said, verse 31, Aware of the impossible logistics, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So so to that point, it had been impossible for the twelve to have leisure even to eat. It's so busy. And so Mark starts by highlighting what Jesus said, and Jesus basically endorses leisure in this verse. It can be hard for some of us to hear. He understands human beings. Human beings wear out. They wear down. So they need to separate themselves from work, from demands, and they need to take some leisure. And what do you do when you go on vacation? What do you do? You eat, don't you? (laughs) Probably. You eat. You eat well. You probably eat too much. It's like, oh, I ate too much on vacation. Right? Now I've got to go back, you know, go to the gym or whatever when you get back. But no, when you're on vacation, you eat. You eat well, and it's a good thing. Maybe, maybe logistically, you're planning a vacation this summer. You probably should be. But don't just make it, you know, more work. You can take Jesus' words to the twelve as a guide for yourself. Come away, for your, come away by yourselves. Rest a while. This is Jesus saying this. Like, oh yeah, but there's so much to do. Yeah, of course there's so much to do. But you are limited. You need rest. You need boundaries. You need restoration. Uh, I wasn't planning to say this, but I'm going to say it now. I'm going to the Netherlands for the PhD week. I'm still working on. Surprise, surprise, I am still in the program. I'm going there for a week. But then Crystal's joining me, and we're going to the south of France for our 20-year wedding anniversary. So you can pray that we can rest a while, even for a few days. And where we're going, they've got bullfights. So I'm really stoked. But anyways, that that has nothing to do with the sermon, uh, except to rest a while. But anyways... Now, as often happens, though, as you, as you try to get away, your desolate place can become quite busy, especially if you've got one of those little black boxes in your pocket and you don't shut it off, right? But Jesus, he was being tracked by the crowd so that they were running to get to the beach that Jesus was going to land on. But, you know, even then, You know, Jesus then, he's not bitter. He never stops caring for the weary and for the weak. Mark tells us, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And then he explains what is the manner of this compassion. He says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. That reference, being sheep without a shepherd, it's used six times in the Old Testament from the book of Numbers, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. It's interesting, the first reference is when Moses appeared, appealed to God, he's, he's crying out to God, to, as, he put, as Moses put it, to appoint a man over the congregation. Moses knows he's going to need somebody. Part of the reason we have new elders brought in and appointed is because the old elders are going to die. Right? <laughs> Let's be honest. They're just being pretty practical here. Not always going to be here. Maybe sooner than later, I don't know. So he's looking for a successor to Moses. We know, of course, that the immediate successor to Moses was Joshua, right? Joshua is the immediate successor. But Jesus is Yeshua Mashiach. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus Christ. And he is the true and ultimate successor of Moses. So Jesus in saying this was actually taking up his appointment by God as being a man over the congregation of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what's going on here. That's why there's more always more going on in Mark than you that might meet the eye. These people were scattered, they were desperate. They were so desperate that they were running to be with Jesus, running to see him. And the key word which describes Jesus in this impossible situation is compassion. He had compassion on them in their impossible situation. Now, the disciples who are with Jesus, they're like regular church folk. They're very practical people. All of you, I know, you're practical people. You're saying, well, why, you know, why don't we have air conditioning in here? That's what you're thinking all the way through the sermon. No, maybe not. But they saw the logistics, these guys did. And, and, and they said to Jesus, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So they're concerned with time, with place, with food, with finances. Practical stuff. All of that needed to be solved practically and logistically. And because it was a desolate place, the logistics looked impossible for the disciples to solve. They just can't do it. Now you know the Sunday school story. Or if it's new to you, some of you, you can track quite quickly with what happened. Jesus challenged the disciples with this impossible logistical problem. He puts it back on them. And he answered them, you give them something to eat. And of course, then the practical disciples offer a very practical answer. Uh, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? We don't got no money. And you can just read the sarcastic tone coming through. You can imagine even Peter himself saying something like that, making that comment, who later is the one recounting this to Mark. Maybe it wasn't Peter who said it. Maybe they're all saying it. But that is definitely Peter's style of response. Verse 38, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus began dealing with impossible logistics. Now notice, he organized them. He organized them by hundreds and by fifties. He organized, he prayed, and he distributed. Took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. See, this is is like the Samaritan woman at the well or at any of the other massive miraculous feedings. The people are satisfied in their practical needs. Jesus can provide that. He can. But it still leaves open the need to be satisfied at a deeper level. Many of you are coming here and you're still not satisfied at the deeper level. You can have your physical needs met, but you're not satisfied in your soul. I was reminded of a hymn that I learned in college uh, when I was down at Master's College. They used to have it all the time in chapel. The line goes, Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy. But the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Hallelujah, he has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings through his blood. I now am saved. You see, that's, that's the soul satisfaction that's still needed. Now, did people recognize that this amazing miracle had happened? Or were they just concerned about the logistics? Oh, yeah, leftovers, 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish, having fed 5,000 men and obviously a proportionate number of women and children. These were impossible logistics, and Jesus cared about them. He cared. Like sometimes you won't pray about practical stuff in your life because you think it's not spiritual enough. So you don't pray. You don't ask God for practical things. But he cares about such. Because he has compassion and you're real people with limits and you need a roof over your head and clothes on your back and money in your bank account and food on the table and even, you know, the windows at least open. Jesus cared about him. He was, he was the fulfillment in doing this of being the new Moses. He's leading a new people and providing for them bread in the wilderness. Literally, that's what he's doing. He's in the desolate wilderness, and he's providing food for them. And this is what Mark wants us to see. That's why he's arranging it this way. The impossible logistics of Israel's wilderness journey was provided for by God through Moses, and now the new Moses provides even better because he is God in the flesh. That's what you're to see. He is even better than Moses. He is God in the flesh. And he can overcome even the impossible logistics, even far better than what Israel had in the wilderness. So that's the second thing to see. We saw impossible politics, impossible logistics, but now impossible physics. See now Mark to clarify the deity of Jesus Christ to see that Jesus Christ, what he has is beyond the power of being a mere miracle worker. you got this last episode. And it is, I mean, it is just spectacular. I, I think familiarity breeds contempt. For a time, Jesus was willing to dismiss the crowds. And as verse 45 tells us, he wasn't trying to desperately keep a crowd like so many marketers have done. Instead, he made the disciples leave, and then they're going to sail to Bethsaida. And with the people gone, then Jesus, verse 46, what does he do? What does it say there? He went up on a mountain to pray. Interesting how the dismissing of the people and going up on the mountain to pray, it certainly sounds reminiscent of the barrier which was placed between Moses at the top of Mount Sinai and the people of Israel who were not permitted to draw near in Exodus chapter 19. And what did Jesus do on the mountain? What did he do? Did he worship the mountain like people do out in Canmore and Banff? Worship the mountain? No. He prayed to God. With all the power that was at Jesus' disposal, the Son of Man, with all of that power, what does he choose to do? He chooses to pray. He prays. He prays according to his human nature. He prays humbly as a servant. He prays even according to human nature as a human son to his divine Father, our Father who is in heaven. He's in dependence upon the Father. He's walking in step with the Spirit proceeding from the Father, and yet the Spirit who proceeds even from the Divine Son Himself. You see, God the Son incarnate at prayer makes that hilltop a holy mountain. It's a holy mountain. Just like Gavin referenced in Isaiah 6 and his connection to Isaiah 40, the holiness of God. When Jesus is at prayer on top of that mountain, he is God the Son in the flesh, incarnate, and he prays, and it is then a holy place. Now, just think about this there is no scientist. There is no scientist. None on earth. Not a one. None through history. There's no scientist who can recreate the spiritual power that resided on that mountain. I know, I know the scientists are smart guys. I know they've got lots of education. I know there is analysis that they can do that is amazing. But there is no scientist that can recreate the experiment Of the spiritual power that resided on that mountain it is impossible for human reason it is impossible for man-made technology to recreate just to show the limits of science so-called so if we're concerned about politics or logistics or anything else if you're concerned about problems, problems in Alberta, problems with the government, problems with the city, problems with the logistics in your family, problems with all these things. If you're concerned about these problems, if you're serious about these problems, you've got to be serious about prayer. You have to be. We need to be serious about going to God. We don't need to go to the prayer mountain at 5 a.m. like the Korean church brothers and sisters do. Although you you could if you wanted. But, But we must learn to not be anxious about anything, Philippians 4, 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You say, yeah, but God knows everything. Yeah, He does. But Jesus, according to the divine nature, knew everything. But according to the human nature, Jesus prayed. He prayed to God. He let His request be made known to God. If, If He does it, why not you? Why not me? Beyond human reason. Beyond human comprehension, something happens when we pray as Jesus prayed. We actually have, even as Philippians 4 says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It surpasses that. And that peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing thing. These things that we are familiar with and we're so familiar, we'll put them in a, you know, put them on a stenciled board and put them as a sign in your in your living room or something, or on a t-shirt. We're so familiar with them. And I think then we'd actually don't recognize the gravity of these things, the immensity of them. I know I don't. I I don't see the gravity enough of it. If Jesus prayed in the midst of his busyness, then his prayer life should be a guide for ours, even even as it has been from the days of the early church through 2,000 years of his ascended intercession for us in heaven. Jesus now is, he's not on the holy mountain. He's in heaven praying for believers. If you're a Christian believer today, he's praying for you right now. Just as he did on earth. Now he continues unceasingly. Now you see the mysteries of the Trinity which are on display in the praying of the Incarnate Son. It is mysteries. But there are even more incomprehensible and impossible physics yet to see in this passage. Because you know the record. The disciples, of course, they're on the boat. They go across the Sea of Galilee by night. And we're told in verse 48, they're making headway painfully For the wind was against them. Very practical. They're just trying to get across the Sea of Galilee, and the wind is against them. It's it's impossible to make headway. You feel that this week? You can't. The winds are against me, even metaphorically. And then casually. (laughs) It's so casual in, in this passage. Casually, it's like you might describe kind of a night out for dinner or an observation of someone after church. Mark says, he came to them walking on the sea. Just like that. That's how he puts it. This isn't Moses, by the power of God, parting the Red Sea to walk on dry land because human beings need to walk on dry land. This is God the Son walking on the sea. On the sea. He doesn't need to walk on dry land. He can walk on the water. This is where our familiarity with the story does breed contempt. Because if you and me are honest, we know we're supposed to believe this. But we simply don't believe that Jesus could walk on the sea. We don't believe it. Because to do that is impossible. It's impossible. The physics are impossible. And yet, He was going to do something that was greater than Moses' miracle of crossing the Red Sea on dry land. He's, he's going to be on the sea, on top of the water. Verse 48 says, He meant to pass by them, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. You see, even these disciples, they couldn't find a rational explanation for what Jesus was doing, so they had to scramble for a supernatural one. It must be a ghost, a spirit, a demon. And they're terrified. They don't know what category to put this in. Jesus is walking on the sea. How do you classify that? What realm of study and analysis do you put that in? How do you categorize that? The physics are impossible. It doesn't work. But when you read about God's actions in the Exodus... They were terrifying. They were terrifying. Destroying Pharaoh's army, swallowing them up in the Red Sea, swallowing up Korah's clan in a massive fault line. The ground literally opens up and swallows them. It's the kind of stuff that the imagination creates and terrifies you in your dreams. And yet this was the judgment of God upon the wicked, because God is a terror to his enemies. We must never forget that. God is a terror to his enemies. Don't think that God's enemies are getting away with anything. They're not. He is patient and long-suffering, but they're not getting away with anything. Now Jesus had been watching these guys cross on the boat, He'd been watching these guys the whole time, verse 50, but immediately, they're terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and he said, Hey, 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 take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. This is the peace of God that surpasses understanding that guarded their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. I can't move from verse 50 without seeing then this profound compassion, the compassion that Galvin has the theme in our opening liturgy. the compassion of Jesus to say to these storm-tossed and drowning and overwhelmed guys, he said, "Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but I've if I'm really honest, I've felt afraid of not coping. I've texted with a guy this week, and, and I think he is afraid of not coping with the apparent impossibilities of his life. I've seen a lot of people in this church and other connections, I've seen people overwhelmed recently. People who are overwhelmed. It might be you. You're overwhelmed. They're, these folks are afraid. They're, they're afraid of not coping, and they're not coping. And yet, Jesus says, just like He says them by the Word of God, Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. It is I. And so the question is who is Jesus? Who is he? The answer is, he says, it is I. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus' invitation echoes Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my what? All of my fears. afraid. He delivered me from all my fears. The answer, nevertheless, that answer in the hearts of the disciples was slow and it was puzzled, as is so often the case. They were utterly astounded, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And this kind of reminds us how like Israel. Those disciples were, even though they had one greater than Moses offering them comfort. Yet this impossible physics, the impossible physics of his walk on water, even even though we've got that, even in verses 53 to 56, we're shown that he could heal the sick, and it's an impossible physics too. Because he could heal the sick, not by putting some procedure on them, but by them touching not even his own skin, but by touching his clothes. Again, no scientist, no physicist, there's nobody who can recreate that. It is a supernatural power. All of it shows That Jesus was not some roaming teacher. He's not some traveling guru. Jesus stood against the impossible. He stood against it. Jesus was the servant, the son of man, the obedient Israelite, the better Moses. And he stood against all the things that Israel had come to believe were truly impossible. He stood against them. Impossible politics? No, I'm against that. Impossible logistics? No, I can fix that. Even impossible physics, look at me. I hold the world in the palm of my hand. But as Jesus told the rich, rich young ruler when asked if anyone can even be saved, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. To bring this to a close then, these amazing passages. And it can be difficult to to actually feel the gravity of them. And you feel bad. I don't feel the gravity enough of this. But I'll tell you what I know you're feeling. I know you're feeling this acutely. Is if I asked you, are you facing impossible situations right now? And I can go through row by row, pew by pew. And you could tell me what is the impossible situation in your life right now. It's just impossible. It's not moving. It doesn't budge. It's always there. It doesn't change. And you say it's impossible. And you just keep going through and keep going through. Jesus stands against the impossible. He stands even against what you are being stretched with past your breaking point. And he stands against it because of his death and resurrection. So Paul could pray For believers in Ephesians 3, verse 16, he could say that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, you, you all, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ himself may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. You'll have strength. You don't got strength now, but you will have strength. Strength to comprehend. Ah, oh, I see it. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That is, that is beyond the limits of our comprehension. And so this, is, this needs to be very, very clear. Your impossible life. Maybe you don't talk to anybody about it, but you think, oh, this is impossible. Your impossible life is the showcase for Christ's exclusive power in your life. It, it's not just His power that might be like others' power. It is the showcase of His exclusive power that no one else but He alone exercises. So when people see you and they marvel at you and they look at you and they think, how are you coping with this impossible situation? When they see it, they see you are coping. You're almost thriving. You're almost thriving. When they see that, they will see clearly that it is the exclusive power of Christ that is getting you through. And God gets all the glory then. Not some of it. He gets all the glory. And of course, nothing is more impossible than for a sinner To stand right before God it is impossible by any human means every human religion tries it the Jewish activist Abigail Schreier has said that the gender ideology movement has become a religion there's no God but there's all the apparatus to try to make a sinner acceptable to the idol that they have put in place instead of God it's just one example There is no way it is impossible for a sinner to stand right before God except Jesus who stands against the impossible. In Christ, the ungodly. Did you hear that? The ungodly can be made right with God. As Paul's powerful logic tells us, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ the righteous one where his righteousness is credited to your account and your guilt and sin, this thing that is impossible for you to get rid of, is somehow transferred and put on him and is justly punished. It is only in the gospel, in Christ, that what is impossible becomes possible That you, a sinner, can stand right before God now and forever. So the question is, as we leave, are you afraid? Honestly, be very honest. Are you afraid afraid of the future? Are you afraid of your past? Maybe you're afraid of God. Then you need to listen to Jesus, who says through His Word, who speaks against all that is impossible in your life, he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's believe him. And let's obey him. Let's pray together. High and holy God, grant to us your mercy today and glorify your own name exclusively, Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand as we respond to the only God, the true and living God. Please rise. Mark 6 is directed to highlight even what was spoken of in Psalm 34, this truth. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed, is the man who takes refuge in Him. Find your refuge in Him today. Go in peace.